Welcome to the Boardrooms Desk, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting, high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Boardbench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Boardroom's Best. I'm your host, Nancy May. It is a real pleasure and privilege to have my friend, Dr. Mark Jackson, here today as our guest on The Boardroom's Best. Mark is a theoretical physicist and the lead scientific expert at Cambridge Quantum Computing. Mark is a true expert in the whole area of quantum and theoretical physics. He's also a co-author of almost 40 technical articles. In addition, he is a founder of a company that deals with crowdsourcing, a new crowdsourcing platform called Physica. And he is also a board member or director of a company, an organization called Bold, the Boldly Go Institute. So thank you you for joining us here today, Mark. It's a pleasure to have you here on the Boardrooms Fest. Thank you for having me, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mark, we were talking the other day a little bit about the true difference of what blockchain is versus quantum computing. In the scope of the board world, we are hearing so much on the subject of blockchain and just a hint of what quantum or the term quantum in discussions of governance and oversight of companies. However, I don't really hear the true definition or really people understanding what the difference is. Can you explain in sort of a layman's term the difference between blockchain and quantum computing? So let me begin by explaining what quantum means. So quantum is the idea in physics that it could be different configurations at the same time. We call this a quantum superposition. And that's not normally how we experience the world. We experience the world in a very classical way. Things usually only have, only have one definite reality. But at the atomic scale, which is where quantum physics becomes important, things often do have simultaneously multiple different states many different configurations. And lately, just in the past few years, we've been able to take advantage of this for building computers that can do problems so much faster than normal computers that we couldn't even really imagine doing these things before. They were basically impossible on normal computers, and we can we now see promise in solving them with quantum computers. And quantum computers and quantum computing, as, as I understand, actually uses the ones and zeros together as as one item versus traditional computing, which is the ones and zeros as two separate numbers. Is that correct? That is correct. So normal computers work with bits, which are just ones and zeros. And if you want to do a calculation, you would have to first consider the zero case and then consider the one case. You are trying to explore every single possibility. A quantum computer works with quantum bits or qubits, Q-U-B-I-T-S. And a quantum bit can be a one and a zero at the same time. And so this means that you can basically do two calculations at once. It can consider both both of these states simultaneously. And there are some problems that can take advantage of this. And those are the ones that we would be able to solve much, much faster using quantum computers. So now we're just moving at even a greater speed of delivery and opportunity in solving problems that are more complex than we've done before. That's right. There are there are a few problems that we, we know that, that could greatly benefit from quantum computing. So one example is chemistry. So it turns out that the equations in chemistry are very difficult for a normal computer to solve. But a quantum computer, because it already obeys the laws of quantum physics, which is basically how chemistry works, 
could solve them very efficiently. And so one of the things that people are very excited about is that we could design chemical analysis programs, that we could understand the properties of different molecules on a computer. We wouldn't have to do this as much in the laboratory. And so the ultimate goal would be some sort of personalized medicine. You could design drugs specifically for people. Uh, you could design more energy efficient materials. So things like this are an application of quantum computers. So could we actually eliminate the idea of the lab rat and just be able to figure out what these scenarios were from an individual healthcare perspective? That would be a, a wonderful goal. I don't know if it would be possible to completely eliminate the lab rat, but I think it's sort of like if you want to design a building, we no longer have to go to the construction site and kind of try things out before we actually build the real building. We can put the model on a, on a computer. We can use CAD programs to do, to do a lot of the modeling. And so we know a lot of the properties, like the stability and the cost and how it looks, long before we ever have to go to a construction site. And so the goal is similar to, to, to that. Uh, we would like to do this with chemistry. We'd like to understand the properties of the molecules theoretically before we ever have to, uh, to deal with humans or animals. So even the simulation of how those chemical components would react against a particular and, and I'm not a scientist, but a genomic makeup in a particular individual or even a group of people who have, have a certain sort of predisposition over somebody else who might not. Exactly, yeah. The, the more that we understand about genetics, the more we realize that uh, a certain drug or treatment can work very well for one person, but not as well for someone else. And so as we understand both genetics and chemistry and modeling it theoretically, we could hopefully design more personalized medicine for people. So that's in the healthcare environment. From what I also understand in, in previous conversations we've had, this actually going through the whole process and computing process is not that easy because there are different types of, of platforms that the qubits are actually running on. Is that correct? That's right. So even though quantum computers were thought of about 40 years ago, the technology wasn't nearly good enough to actually build it back then. We now have several ways of doing this. One of the most widely used right now is superconducting technology. So the qubits are kept very, very cold. They're very fragile. But the advantage is that they can do the calculations in nanoseconds very, very quickly. And there are a number of companies that, that are using this and they, they believe it's promising. Is the ability to keep the equipment cold allows the speed of computing to take place at a faster, more rapid rate? It, it has to relate to the, the temperature in the environment? Yeah, it does because the qubits are so fragile that in order to preserve their quantum nature, we call it coherence, in order to preserve the coherence, we have to keep them very cold and isolated from the outside environment. And it's only when they maintain this coherence that they behave like quantum bits and, and take advantage of that. Okay. Now, there's another type of computer called, uh, or type of computing called ion trapping. Is that correct? That is correct. And these can be done at uh, much higher temperatures, like normal everyday type temperatures, and they can be done basically on a lab bench. So that, that's a big advantage. The disadvantage is that they're not nearly as fast. It takes longer to perform the calculation. But there's an advantage of still being able to do something that may take longer to get your outcome on. That, that's right. Yeah. As we, as we increase the number of qubits, and we scale the quantum computer, that means that we can do more calculations simultaneously. And I should also add, because in the trapped ion approach, the qubits are more stable, so they can last seconds or, or even minutes. And so you can fit in a lot of calculations in that time. Okay. And then there's a third type of computing, a topological type of computing. That's right. And this is the one that 
has not been developed as much as the other two. The other two, we've actually had many years of technological advancement. So we were pretty well familiar with that. In the topological approach, it uses a special type of particle called a Majorana fermion. And these Majorana fermions have a special property that when you move them around each other, they remember it. We say that they, they pick up a face. And you can think of this a lot like if you're braiding hair, hmm. if you hold in your hand strands of hair and you move your hands around each other so that you're braiding it, even if you jiggle your hands a little bit, the braiding is still intact. If you wanted to undo it, you would have to move your hands all the way around again to undo that. So these qubits then have sort of a, a brain of their own to remember what they've done in the past. That's right. We don't, we don't think of them as literally having a brain, but they, they do remember the fact that you've moved them around each other. It uh, picks up, shows a signal of it in their property. So the advantage there then, if I'm correct in understanding, is the fact that you don't need to either reprogram or retrain the qubit in a, in a previous mode of operation. And then therefore, it's already set. You don't have to start from square one again to go into a different path and try another outcome if the base is still the same. Is that correct? That's right. So we say that you don't need error correction in, uh, in this type of approach, not, not nearly as much. Whereas in the other two, it's pretty easy for errors to pop in. So I, I mentioned that these were very fragile. But with the topological approach, all the information is there in this braiding. And so even if something slightly disturbs the qubit, it's okay. The information is still there. And so that's the big advantage of this approach. So what other applications might that actually relate to outside of, let's say, biogenetics? Sure. So one major application of this is in machine learning. And it's not simply normal machine learning, but faster. When you run it on a quantum computer, it's actually its own subfield. It's actually called quantum machine learning. And it's a, it's a different mathematics, it's a different logic. And so we're now developing algorithms or specialized programs to take advantage of all these, all these new tricks from the fact that it's on a quantum computer. And so the idea is that we would be able to come up with much more sophisticated machine learning or AI type of program. So I'm just throwing this out. Mm -hmm. Let's say Facebook understands a certain amount of information about its customers and mm -hmm. from the user perspective, but also understands a little bit about what the end result or end desire of the advertiser is. Now they can take that and move at a faster rate and deliver us more products and service from a, a consumer perspective? Well, yes. Uh, most of AI and machine learning is, is very benign and is, in fact, very useful. So, so the, in the example you mentioned, yeah, a, a prime use of, of machine learning for Facebook, for example, is that it has all this user data. And based on that data, it can identify the different interests of the different users. And so if you were an advertiser and you wanted to target an ad to someone who would be interested in that, that would be something that you would use machine learning for, that it would identify the most likely users who are most likely to be interested in that particular subject. And so that's an example of something that we might be able to develop quantum machine learning algorithms for. This gets a little scary. Th that's right. In fact, there's already a, a partnership between Volkswagen and Google in which they want to use quantum machine learning for autonomous driving because there's a tremendous amount of data that a self-driving car has to juggle in real time because it wants to get you there in, in a reasonably short amount of time. But of course, it has to juggle this against safety of the, of the customer and the user. And so it has to take into account all these factors. And so 
this is a, a perfect example of machine learning that might be able to be improved by quantum computers. Or maybe I could have Ford Motor create a vehicle that was specifically better designed for me based on my height, my weight, my traffic patterns, where I lived in the world or not, mm -hmm. which is really fabulous thinking about from the commuting perspective of those of us who get stuck on 95 here in the Northeast, I-95. But I have older parents who don't drive anymore. And if they had access to something like this in a safe environment, and all of a sudden they didn't end up in California where you are with the right set of, of vehicles that were autonomous driving, uh, I would know that they could safely get to a doctor, get the right prescription, get the right diagnostics. I could have all the information in that vehicle sent to me and then back to their pharmacist and doctor as they needed it. it was, I mean, I'm just sort of getting an idea of like where this could possibly go. It's fantastic. Yes, there are so many companies that are now poised to take advantage of, of benefits from quantum computers. So I've, I've mentioned a few. So yes, automobile companies, pharmaceutical companies, material science companies, any of them should be able to see benefits from quantum computers in a few years. And then the defense industries as well? That's, that's right. And this is, a, this is a fascinating subject because it was realized decades ago, before we had even really built quantum computers, that the formula that we use for encryption, for keeping confidential and sensitive data on the internet safe, is actually vulnerable to quantum computers. It turns out that the formula that we use is something that a quantum computer could undo and hack and decipher very efficiently. And even though it was realized decades ago, people weren't very scared because we didn't really have the computer yet. So who cared? But now that we're actually building the computers, people are taking this much more seriously. So this is the undoing of blockchain. Yes, this is an example where blockchain uses encryption like this to do its security. And so blockchain and, and other cryptocurrencies and such would be vulnerable to hacking by a quantum computer. Ooh. <laughs> I guess the, the peace of mind right now is that there's only a few quantum computers in the world. That's right. And they're not nearly powerful enough to do this type of hacking. We would need yet uh, tens of ten. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, we would need far more qubits than we currently have. But we're making rapid strides. And so the idea is that maybe in about 10 years, we would have a quantum computer powerful enough. But that doesn't mean that we should wait 10 years before we start to think about this. It's actually important to start working on this right now, because it takes time to make the transition in our infrastructure to make things protected against the hacking. Global scale or in our own wallet, which is just as important. We're around the corner. It's it's tomorrow when we think about it in the scope of, of the business and economic environment. And you've got this one major, you're talking about a major quantum computer that can do a lot of this work. Is there any chance that you could have I call them mini quantum computers. So they're working on smaller scale items versus waiting for this big gigantic behemoth to come along and solve or create different kinds of scenarios for us. So it's really interesting. Right now, there are 80 credible hardware groups building quantum computers. 80. You said 80, right? 80. Yeah. So some of them are, are big corporations like IBM or Google or Microsoft or Intel. Some of them are startups. So they, they just started a few years ago, and they're focused exclusively on building quantum computers. And there's many academic groups working on some aspect of it. Most of them are pretty large. They're at least in a lab, and some of them take up even rooms, especially the ones with cryogenic freezing containers, as I described. There's promise that we might be able to shrink that and even get it on a, on a chip. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not nearly there yet, but there's people thinking about this already. I think it's unlikely that we will have a quantum iPhone for example, especially in the, in the next few years. 
just because the technology is so specialized, what I think is much more likely is that they will have cloud distribution right. so that you might have your iPhone and over the internet, it connects with the quantum computer and the quantum computer runs those programs and then sends the results back. It's like the old days where you would dial into a modem and be able to hook into a local university system. It, exactly, yeah. It's funny that we're going back to that model, but that seems most likely at present. Now, the other thing that I found that was rather interesting is we've just talked a lot about the hardware, the quantum computer and the quantum computing itself. But without the software or the ability to have the information or that those those brain aspects running on it, what good is a piece of hardware, correct? Exactly right. And so uh, you're right that we focus in this discussion on the hardware, but there's also an enormous effort being done to develop the software behind it, because just as you said, the hardware isn't much good without the software. And so people are trying to develop better quantum algorithms, so specialized programs to run on quantum computers. Uh, the company I work for is developing a compiler, which will actually be able to run on all of these computers that we've described. So across all platforms? Then. Yeah, yeah. Across all of the ones I've mentioned, it would take the, the program that you've written and it finds the most efficient way to run it on the machine that you are using. And then you could actually say, all right, I'm on this machine, but it's not running as well as it should be. So now I can share and run over to another system and, and work it better over there. That's one example. Uh, another example is, so I've described the different approaches, like super connecting or ion trap or, or topological or such. Each of these different types, and then even within the type, there are differences of the speed of the qubits, the error rates, which qubits are connected to each other, and so allow interaction. There's a lot of differences. So what we've done is, in our compiler, we've built all of this in. The compiler knows all of these details. So it takes the program that you've written and it finds the best way to implement it on the machine that you've chosen, taking all of this into account. And so to the, to the user, you wouldn't know the difference. You just hit run. Wow. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of details that are being worked out for you. What I think is really fascinating from a boardroom perspective is the type of intellect that you now need to have in looking across a business environment and platform as it relates to the company that you oversee, let's say as a director, versus what does that mean from a competitive and a global perspective for an industry, for the customers, for the vendors, for the components that you may be using if you're creating hard goods or even soft goods. It's, it's a different way of thinking about solving problems or being an advisor to oversee those problems that's happening in the corporation. You need to have that understanding of physics. Basically, you're a theoretical physicist as opposed to just a business professional who understands finance. It's a new way of really trying to apply problem solving in a governance oversight now. That is correct. It, it's a strange time to be in the field because you really do need to have a technical background in order to either work on the hardware or even the software. And that, that hasn't traditionally been the case. You don't need a PhD in physics to be a computer programmer, but suddenly you, you do for, for quantum computing. And so there are not a lot of people right now who could credibly advise you on such matters. And it's such an important topic right now. Well, and it has a chance to actually blow up companies and industries very easily, just because the magnitude and the impact of what the outcomes of quantum computing could mean to an industry. It's exciting and scary at the same time. That's exactly right. And history is full of examples where a, an industry or a company was doing very well, 
And then a new technology disrupted them in a way that just within a few years, they went from the dominant player to obsolete. And the classic example is Kodak. Uh, did you know it was actually a Kodak employee who invented the digital camera? And he brought it to his managers and they said, yeah, we don't think that's very interesting because the prototype that he showed them was very primitive. And they didn't realize that in a few years, this would actually overthrow the film-based photography industry. And so with... They were in the razor blade business. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so with quantum computing right now, it's still in its infancy, but in a few years, it won't be. So it's only been about four years that we now understand this is a real thing. This really will become important. And so sometimes I, I explain this to people and they laugh and they say, oh, well, look at how simple the quantum computers are right now. Look how powerful normal computers are. Yes, that's true today, but in a few years, that won't be the case. And so it's really worth getting in on the ground floor and taking advantage of it now. So if you even just look at what happens day to day on the trading floor and simple things as moving your 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 trading facility closer in the old days, really, not long ago, to the point of decision or the point of trade, shortened that time frame to be able to make trades faster and more efficiently for, for a lot of companies. Now, if you add quantum computing into it, we've got a whole nother scenario that could actually disrupt the markets altogether. And I don't know, maybe there isn't even in a market all, at all that uh, quantum computing takes over in a different level. It's it's a little bit of a sci-fi look into the future. Yes, people are, uh, are are looking at all the different applications. So one of them is finance, as you just mentioned. Um, AI is used in so many things right now, from, from autopilot on planes to self-driving cars to Netflix recommendations. So it's really hard to imagine where this will go in just a few years. Pretty exciting. Now, you had mentioned just before we started this conversation that your group has actually come up with a new discovery. That's correct. So one of our big projects has been quantum chemistry. And I, I explained why that was so important. And we actually have had a partnership with JSR in which we have been using a, a real quantum computer. We use the, the IBM computer to determine some simple properties of different molecules. And we've actually made a lot of progress just in the past few months about uh, how to model some of these molecules. And, uh, and just last week, we made an announcement that we really have developed a new technique. This is actually the first time that these type of molecules were able to be modeled on a real quantum computer. And the reason that we chose this particular problem is that a normal computer would really not be able to model this at all. And so that's why we're so excited about this. So we could come up with new fuel products as well and energy resources? One of the applications of this might be more energy efficient material. We could go on forever, Mark. And I know it's it's an exciting topic and, and I have so many more questions. But to be honest with you, I'm not even sure where to begin. We've just touched the surface. <laughs> it's, it's a point of, of discussion that I think just baffles a lot of people in the environment today, in the business environment, yet creates huge opportunity for the imagination to grow. Of course, the big thing is, where's the business application? We can see that happening sooner rather than later. It's how much time and effort do companies put into this now, where they're going to see the outcome. And I think the biggest challenge that more companies will have than not is how much do you invest in the future, which is always a, a challenge for companies. How much R&D do you put into something without knowing what that financial outcome is going to be? And it's a balance between how the markets pull the companies and the boards and the CEOs to that particular financial outcome for them, for the investor, to where is the current 
in the, the fastest bang for your buck. And I think that's an interesting point of discussion that we'll have to really consider going forward. I agree. One thing I might mention is that IBM and Google have actually done a great job of developing networks of corporations who would be interested in learning more about that. So I would encourage you to, to get in touch with them if your board or corporation would like to learn more. So use what's out there, co-opt with other companies who at least have maybe more than just their toe. They may be ankle deep into this scenario in the quantum computing environment and what it could mean to you and your company. Or if you're an entrepreneur, where that might go from a, a platform, an idea that you're working on. I'm going to guess that a lot of these companies are wanting to work with some of the best and the brightest innovative thinkers to push the envelope outside the traditional realms. There's a whole new exciting world out there, and it's well beyond our imaginations, and I can't wait to learn more about what's going on. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you today. If you have any more questions, I'd be glad to chat more. Absolutely. I think we actually probably have around two or three to go here. Mark has been kind enough to give to give me a couple of other links about quantum computing and the environment and the impact on companies and some of the thought processes that you may be working on today in your boardrooms. Those will be available in our show notes. If you have any other questions or comments, please post them. We'll also be posting them on other venues, including LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere else. But we encourage you to listen, stretch your imagination, ask questions. There's a lot more to come down the road. And really just imagine the impossible as it might be well into the future for the boards that you're serving and for the companies that you're working with. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate your time, just your dedication to making the world a better place. Thank you, Nancy. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.